Now we come to chapter 13, the last section, verses 1 through 3. On the third day is to be taken as a more general day. These verses seem to happen after the events of the rest of the chapter. What we're going to see in verses 4 through the end of the chapter is a series of disappointments that Nehemiah runs into, one after another after another. Verses 1 through 3 seem to be happening after that. And one of the disappointments that Nehemiah encounters is a re-intermarrying of the foreigners. It seems after that happens and after they're confronted, then they make this vow. These verses might be emphasizing the vow that they took in light of the things that happen later. So verses 1 through 3 happen after the rest of the chapter. Verse 1, On that day the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and they found written in it that no Amorite or Moabite may ever enter the assembly of God. For they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but insisted on hiring Baalam to curse them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing, and when they heard the law, they removed from Israel all who were mixed ancestry. So then it goes in to this narrative. Seems very odd that this narrative is preceded by this random they made a vow not to marry and are marry with people. Unless you understand that it's a vow that they made after the narrative. And that makes more sense. So the narrative is going to explain why these people made the vow. Now, God made them vow that they not intermarry with Moabites and Ammonites. And that they were not allowed in the temple. Now, remember, none of these laws are absolute laws. That no foreigner is allowed to come to Israel. Because remember, Ruth herself was a Moabite, and she was brought in because of her faith. And so faith is always the exception to all this stuff. Faith is always the exception to this stuff. So God, and, that, and so God said that you're not allowed to enter the temple in any kind of worship service, the courtyard, to the 10th generation. Yet David was a descendant of Ruth, and he wasn't quite the 10th generation. So he would have never been allowed in to praise. Yet he did go in, and God never condemned him for that. So this seems to be faith is the exception to all this. Faith is the exception to all this. But what they're saying is that these people didn't have faith. So verse 4, the first scenario that he runs into that displeases him is verses 4 through 9. But prior to this time, Elishab, he was the high priest at this time, was a relative of Tobiah. Remember that that's the guy from Samaria that opposed them continually. Had been appointed over the storerooms of the temple of our God. And he made for himself a large storeroom where previously they had been keeping the grain of offering and the incense of the vessels along with the tithes of the grain and the new wine and the olive oil and commanded for the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers and the offerings of the priests. And during this time, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes of Babylon, I had gone back to the king after some time, and I had requested the leave of the king. And I returned to Jerusalem, and I discovered the evil that Elisha had done for Tobiah, supplying him with the storeroom and the courts of the temple of God. And I was very upset, and I threw all of Tobiah's household possessions out of the storeroom, and then I gave instructions that the storeroom should be purified, and I brought back the equipment of the temple of God, along with the grain offering and the incense. Nehemiah says, I, I'm still under the authority of Artaxerxes. I'm still his cupbearer, and I answer to him. And when Artaxerxes sent me to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall, he said, how long will you be? It's been a while, and I was required to go back and report to him. 
And so Nehemiah was probably away for less than a year. That journey would have been a while. He would have had to report to Artaxerxes, spend some time there, and he would have journeyed back. And so he's gone for less than a year. And he comes back to Jerusalem and starts walking through the city. And he starts seeing this corruption and that corruption and that corruption. And as he keeps seeing like, oh my gosh, I've been gone for less than a year. And we're already going to hell in a handbasket, so to speak. And he starts getting angry as he sees thing after thing after thing. And the first he encounters is Elisha, who is the high priest of the temple, is related to Tobiah, that Sumerian guy who opposed them. And he has brought Tobiah into the storerooms of the temple and allowed him to have an apartment, so to speak, in there. And this angers Nehemiah because Nehemiah knew that he, as a Jew who's not a Levite, is not allowed in the temple, let alone a man who's not even completely full Jewish, does not have faith in God, has opposed everything that God has done, is now allowed by the high priest to live in the temple. This is absolute a violation of the law and all the requirements. And according to God, the priests were required to kill with the sword anybody who violated and illegally entered the temple without sacrifice or without faith or was not a Levite. Nehemiah would have every right to kill this guy if he wanted to according to the law. And so he threw him out. And he's so angry, he just starts grabbing his stuff and chucking out of the temple, commands the priest to come and says, you need to purify this room. You need to purify this room. Now he figures out a deeper scenario. Verse 10 through 14 is the second one. I also discovered the grain offering for the Levites had not been provided, and that as a result, the Levites and the singers who performed this work had all gone off to their fields. So I registered a complaint with the leaders asking, why is the temple of God neglected? Then I gathered them and reassigned them to their positions. Then all of Judah brought the tithe, the grain and the new wine and the olive oil into the storerooms, and I gave instructions that Shalimah and the priests and Zadok the scribe and the certain Levites named Padiah be put in charge of the storerooms and Hannah son of Zachar and the son of Matai and their assistants, for they were regarded as trustworthy. And it was then their responsibility to oversee the distribution of their colleagues, for their colleagues. Please remember me for this, O my God, and do not wipe out the kindness that I have done for the temple of God and for its services. How in the world did Elisha get away with this? Well, there's no priests at the temple anymore. They've all abandoned the temple and they've gone back to their fields and they're working their fields. Well, why have they abandoned the temple and gone and work in the fields? Because everybody stopped tithing to them. Look, your pastor can't dedicate his day and day in and day out to working in the church and ministering to people's needs if nobody's tithing for his salary. And so the Levites aren't getting a tithe anymore and their families are beginning to starve to death. And they're like, I can't do this anymore. So they go back to their fields to, to provide for their family. Nehemiah never rebukes the priests because they're not at fault here. He rebukes the people. This also explains why Tobiah was able to move into the temple and no other priests were angry about it or stopped it because they weren't there. They didn't know this was happening. And so the tithing of the people is what led to this chain reaction. The lack of tithing of the people is what led to this chain reaction of the temple being defiled. And so he's angry at them. Puts men of respect back in charge. So then we come to the third thing that he notices in the corruption. 
verses 15 through 22. In those days I saw people in Judah treading the wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing heaps of grain and loading them onto the donkeys, along with the wine grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, and bringing them to Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I warned them on the day that they sold these provisions, the temple from Tyre, who lived there, and bringing fish and all kinds of merchandise, and were selling it on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem and all the places. So he realizes they're all working on the Sabbath. And people, foreigners and merchants from other cities are coming in selling things to people on the Sabbath. And they're buying things at Walmart and working in their fields instead of actually worshiping God in the temple. Which kind of makes sense because there's no priest to lead them in worship because they haven't been tithing to the priests. So their lack of commitment to Yahweh has led to this chain reaction of things. So... I registered a complaint with the nobles of Judah, saying to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath? Isn't this the way your ancestors act in causing our God to bring on them and on this city all the misfortune, now that you're causing even more wrath on Israel, profaning the Sabbath like this? We're going to go right back in exile because of you people. Come on. When the evening shadows began to fall on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be closed. I further directed that they were not to be open until after the Sabbath. I positioned some of my young men at the gates so that no load could enter on the Sabbath day. The traders and the sellers and all kinds of merchants spent the night outside of Jerusalem once or twice, and I was warned them and said, Why do you spend the night of the, at the wall? If you repeat this, I will forcibly remove you from the time on they did not show up from the Sabbath. And I directed the Levites to purify themselves and come in and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. For this, please remember me, O my God, and have pity on me for in keeping your great law. So I closed the gates on the Sabbath so no merchant can come in and try to sell anything. And then I noticed they were camping out the night before like it's Black Friday getting ready to sell everybody everybody the next day of the Sabbath. And I didn't want them there either to tempt everybody to be ready to that. I don't want them building tents next to the gate to get in the store. And so I drove him away. Like, where's a water cannon when I need it? So he drove him away. And then he commanded the priest to purify things and be diligent. He, he's getting everything back in order, purifying everything. It kind of reminds you of Jesus going through the temple a little bit. Then he comes to the fourth disgrace that he sees. Verses 23 through 27. Also in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, the Philistine territory, Ammon and Moab, who were the descendants of Lot, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and the language of one of the peoples mentioned and were unable to speak the language of Judah. They weren't able to speak Hebrew. Don't read into this. He's not saying like, my goodness, they don't speak English and they're speaking different languages. How dare they? That, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is they don't speak Hebrew and they haven't been taught Hebrew, which means they cannot read the Bible. That's the, that's the horribleness of it. It's not that God forbid you don't know how to speak Hebrew because that's the pure language or the language of God. That's not it at all because it's not. It's because they can't read the Bible because the Bible hasn't been translated into any other language yet. So I entered a complaint with them, and I called down a curse on them, and I struck some of the men and pulled out their hair. I had them swear by God, saying, You will not marry off your daughters to any of the sons, and you will not take any of their daughters as wives of your sons and yourselves. So he begins to rip their hair out and their beards. Now, beards were a sign of respect. When you hit age 30, you were able to be a leader in the community, 
And so you would grow your beard out to symbolize that you were a man of authority and that you're a man to be looked for, to as leadership. And so if you got your beard ripped out and it didn't come in even, then that was publicly disgraceful. This is like having a really bad hair day or the barber messing up your haircut and you don't know how to fix it. And remember when David sent ambassadors to Ammon and Ammon was like, forget you. I don't care about you. I'm going to humiliate you. He shaved half their beards off of the ambassadors and sent them back to David. And David was ticked because this is as if he had done it to him. And so this is a publicly disgraceful thing. And so he's disgracing them as leaders because they have failed to be good leaders in the city. Now, one could argue, wow, you got a little too violent with you, didn't you? And that's not godly. Yeah, but it's not really too far from what Jesus is doing in the temple when he's kind of overturning tables and maybe even whipping some of the people, not in a violent, crippling them kind of whipping them, but there was a whipping swung. So we don't know how to really interpret it. He probably got out of control somewhat, but his anger is righteous. That doesn't mean he's not sinning, but it is a righteous anger. Was it not because of the things like these that King Solomon of Israel sinned among the many nations? And there was no king like him. And he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all of Israel. But the foreign wives made him even them sin. Should we then in our case hear that you do all this great evil, thereby being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign wives? He doesn't require a mass divorce. He does not require a mass divorce like Ezra does. And Ezra would have been there at this time. Ezra did his mass divorce before Nehemiah showed up. But Nehemiah is now encountering this, and Ezra would have been there. And yet he's not requiring this. And remember, they're trying to make a difficult decision in a difficult moment, and they're trying to pick the lesser of two evils. And we don't know the cultural situation as well as they do. And maybe he saw the, 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 the fallout of all the wives and the children that had been sent away and saw how negative and bad that was and decided, I don't want to repeat that. Perhaps he decided that didn't work when Ezra did it, so why would I require to do it again? When we know it didn't work the first time, it's not going to work the second time. Perhaps it's a much smaller group and then doesn't need a mass divorce because the idea of 118 families that have intermarried could be a way more influential corruption in the nation than maybe just a few families that have done it now. These are all things that we're not told, yet Nehemiah chooses not to do this. Verse 28. The whole thing is closed up. Now, one of the sons of Jehoiad, son of Elisha, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sambal and the Hornite, so I banished him from my sight. Please remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. So I purified them of everything, foreign, and I assigned specific duties to all the priests and Levites, and I also provided for the wood offering and the appointed times, and also for the first fruits. Please remember me, O my God. For my good. Now he's not saying, remember we were talked about, it, he's not saying, wow, I'm really awesome right now, remember me, God. He's just saying, like, please be with me, please go with me, be active with me as I'm trying to live righteously among these people. Okay, it's like Moses when he's just like, my goodness, you people, you drove me to madness and sin. And I was doing the best that I could. Now remember, Every single book in the First Testament ends on a negative note. Every narrative does. There's this repetition of phrases here, and this is what Derek Kidner says. I cleanse, I establish, I provided. 
This makes a far less brilliant epitaph than Caesar's boast, I came, I saw, I conquer. But Nehemiah's work was the making of his people, his reforming, his zeal. He partnered by the educative thoroughness of Ezra, gave to post-exilic Israel a virility and a clarity of faith, which is never wholly lost. This would have been the memorial most of this would have been the memorial most to his liking. This indeed now crowned by the lasting benefits of this book to the Christian church surely constitutes a major part of heaven's answer to his repeated prayer, Remember me, O my God, for good. I think that was a powerful statement. Caesar and power comes and says, I came, I saw, I conquered. Notice how close it is to Eve saw the fruit and took and ate. And yet Nehemiah says, I cleanse, I establish, I provide it. That's the cry of the believer and the church expanding the garden. So in conclusion, the events of these books show twofold paths, two main ideas. The one is despite all obstacles that were opposing the Jews, the rebuilding of the wall, the corruption, defilement of the community, the rebuilding of the temple, Yahweh brought them through. He honored all of his promises to them to restore them back to the land, to get them going again with the temple and blessing the land and all that kind of stuff. Despite all obstacles, Yahweh was able to overcome everything. And this is one more powerful testimony that Yahweh is faithful to honor his promises and stick with us no matter what. But I think what makes this, I mean, we've heard this over and over and over again. Yahweh remains faithful. Yahweh overcomes the obstacle. Yahweh moves foreign powers and kings in this way. We've heard this over and over again. But what makes this super powerful is this is on the heels of the Israelites sinning so horribly, so horribly that they became worse than the Canaanites. And God had to take them into exile. And they lived there in foreign nations. And now they've come back as a ragtag nation. And everything would say, abandon them, God. They're not worth it. Because that's what we do as humans. And yet, even in that, God brings them back out of timeout. And he says, I'm still with you. I'm still going to overcome the enemy. I'm still going to establish you. I'm still going to bless you. Nothing can oppose you. Because it's not by might or the flesh, but by the Spirit and the Word of God. And that shows God's faithfulness despite all this horrible, vile sins of Israel history. They even laid it out for you, which was a great summary of everything. Yet at the same time, nothing had changed. Horrible, harsh, drastic punishment and judgment did not change their hearts. They were still the sinners that they've always been. And Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, or Zerubbabel brings them back. They start building the temple. And with one year, they give up because it's too hard. And within one decade, within 80 years, they've gone into intermarriage and they've abandoned everything. Nehemiah leaves for one year and they go back into all these sins. And what this shows you is that the blessings of God don't change people. I mean, I'm not, listen. Judgments from God and blessings from God can change people. And we've seen multiple times where that does. But blessings from God and judgments of God does not change 
the whole entirety of who we are as a people group, a community, a nation. Individuals can be changed by God by experiencing his blessings when they don't deserve it, when experiencing judgments when they should get a kick in the rear end. But the massive amount of people and communities, humanity as a whole, does not change with any of these things. And the pre-exilic prophets left us off with the point that Israel needed a circumcised heart. They needed a changed heart. And that could only come with a true permanent atonement of sins and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit that changes us. And what God is showing here is that message of the prophets has not changed. Israel still needs something supernatural to happen to their hearts. And this is how the last narrative book, chronologically speak, ends. Now, the last narrative book in the Hebrew Bible is Chronicles, which ends on an even more horrible note than this. Table of contents, not good note. Chronologically, historically, not good note. And this is all leading the work for who will save the wretched man that I am. And this will be introduced 400 years later of not having any profit by the coming of Jesus Christ, who will do something. This is the final setup or layup for Jesus Christ's coming. When we go into Esther, you're going to see that outside the Jewish community or outside Judah, the same thing is happening. And then we will finish with the final prophets who are constantly talking, you haven't changed, you haven't changed. And the message is going to sound exactly the same, except it's not going to be about Syria and Babylon. It's going to be other things. And so everything is going to keep reinforcing this idea that they need a new heart. And that's why it's so important for you to understand. When Paul says in Romans 3, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Every Jew would have had this history of Israel flashing through their head. Because everything that every epistle writer says theologically and ideologically is a theological unpacking of the narratives all throughout the First Testament. Without the narratives in the First Testament, the theological systematic theology statements of the epistles have no power. They have no power. They're just words. But it's with the narratives and the unfaithfulness of the people and the faithfulness of Yahweh, historical testimonies, that we can say, oh yes, that statement, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that has power. And when Timothy says, you're faithful to us even when we're not faithful to you, that has power. Only because of the narratives of the First Testament. And this is why I would challenge you. Many of you have been with me for this whole thing, but this is why we must invest ourselves in the First Testament because it's only here that we see God at action. We don't see God do anything, and we don't learn anything new about him in the Second Testament. It is only here that we see him in action, and it is only here that the theological statements of the New Testament make sense and have power. Yahweh, we praise you for who you are. We praise you for the amazing God that you are. We praise you that you have given us this incredible historical narrative and literature to reveal yourself to us. No other God has ever done this. And yet you have loved us 
and wanting to make yourself known to us so greatly and for us to know you that you entered into space, time, and matter and revealed yourself and had it recorded. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the powerful testimonies here. We pray that this would become alive in our hearts and our minds and our actions and that we would be able to emulate the things that you want us to know from your character and your law and we'd be able to continue that to our generations. And we thank you that we have something that they don't know. Not that we are better than them for it, but that we are privileged and blessed. That we have the Spirit of God in us. That you are actually changing our hearts. And so we pray, give us the ability and the desire to allow you to do that. And give us the ability and desire to die to ourselves. And as Nehemiah says, allow us to be cleansed, to be established by you, and to be provided for. Please remember us. Oh, Yahweh, as we do good. In Jesus' name, amen.